Does military intervention work? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Paul Robinson. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective through discussion. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Paul Robinson. Paul is a former military officer. He served in the British Army Intelligence Corps and in the Canadian Forces Reserves. He is now a professor at the University of Ottawa. His research focuses generally on military affairs and international relations. More recently, his focus has been on Russian history, military history, defense policy, and military ethics. When he's not lecturing, he's making sure he has enough content for his blog, Irrationality, which focuses on the relationship between Russia and the West, and what he says are the irrational decision-making processes that dominate international relations. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. So, Paul, in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the answers lead us. You're an international relations expert. You're the man to tell us. Does military intervention work? That uh, depends very much on what you mean by work. If I sort of put a loyally hat on, you know, say def- defi- right. define your terms. Um, for a military strategist who would be thinking in, in terms sort of laid down by the great strategist uh, from Prussia, uh, Karl von Clausewitz, you know, there is, should be some political objective to any military action. That means that there's, if this is a um, mission-oriented activity, that there's a specific goal you have in mind. So if you're defining whether it works or not, um, theoretically what you're asking is, does military intervention achieve the political objectives which lie behind it? Um, that though that does kind of assume a certain degree of, of rationality on the heart of the actor, and the actor hmm. actually does have clearly defined goals, which can be said to have worked or not worked. Um, but very often, of course, that, that that is not the case. So um, before we can even begin to unwrap that question, we have to begin to start thinking about well, why why do politicians carry out military interventions? What what are they trying? to achieve and if we ask that question when we can we can have some idea of understanding mm-hmm. um whether they work or not um the problem is it's actually quite a, a difficult question to answer so i mean there's a number of reasons you, you might do it i mean one is is um for your own security so for instance um the uh wars which have been fought by the united states and its allies including canada in, in iraq and afghanistan and so on had a security dimension that is to say Officially, at least, I mean, one can argue about how how much, which is that is really what's going on. But but officially, at least, these are driven by some understanding that there's a threat to our security in those parts of the world, which we have to eliminate through military action, and that through that we will be safer, right? So therefore, if you're going to say, well, have they worked? You'd have to say, well, have they succeeded in eliminating the military threat? Um, and are we safer? Because, you, I mean, even if you've eliminated the military threat, you might be less safe in some other way because you might, for instance, have incited domestic terrorism against you or, or annoyed a lot of people. So mm-hmm. um, purely just achieving the military objective isn't the same as achieving the, the political objective. Right. So, so then you'd have to say, well, you know, have has Canada, for instance, become safer as a result of its military actions in um, Afghanistan and more recently in Iraq and and well, it's very hard to say because it's a kind of a counterfactual. We don't know what would have happened if, if we hadn't got there. But the uh, evidence would suggest, you know, it's not very positive. I mean, A, the scale of threat which the Taliban ever froze to Canada was 
right. pretty tiny to begin with. Um, but we may have annoyed a lot of people, which may have incited some domestic terrorism. It's, it's very hard to judge these things. But has it made Afghanistan better off? Well, no, not obviously. The Taliban are, are, are still functioning. Um, so that clearly, you know, that particular one ha- has not been a success. If you look more broadly at Iraq, the Americans and the British supposedly went into Iraq in order to eliminate threats and weapons of mass destruction, mm-hmm. therefore in order to make themselves safer. Have they made themselves safer? Well, quite clearly not. I mean, they've made a total hash of From the threat of global terrorism. That yeah, they well, haven't uh, made themselves safer, is what yeah, we're saying. Yeah, but, I mean, of course, the threat they were claiming to be against, which was weapons of destruction, didn't exist. But Oh, I see. Okay, yes. But, but then they destabilized society, which led eventually to um, thousands of Americans and hundreds of Brits losing their lives uh, fighting uh, insurgents in Iraq, and then led to, to the rise of the Islamic State, um, which caused further problems. Um, particularly, the Brits have been suffering from, from terrorism from, from the Islamic right. State. Um, so, so it's very hard to say that any of this has made them safer. So, right. so in, 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 in purely um, security terms, it's hard to say that recent interventions have worked. Now, does that mean they couldn't work and that you can't find examples where... You have no, it's just recent examples are not being very successful. Right. But that, that's looking at it purely, obviously, from a, a, a um, security perspective. If you don't mind, if I make this a very long answer. But, oh, of course. But, but, Go but, ahead. But, but, but um, okay, there's also other things which are claimed for here. For instance, humanitarian goals. So in, interventions have been often justified in recent years by um, talk about human rights, uh, saving people's lives, uh, and so on and so forth. Um have these worked? Again, I mean, it, it, it's hard to say that, you know, the human rights situation in Afghanistan um, has got massively better. Now, perhaps it's better than before the Americans went in 2001, but since about 2002, it, it obviously hasn't drastically uh, improved. Similarly, like Iraq has obviously been a disaster. Uh, Libya, um, which we claimed was a humanitarian intervention, has clearly gone completely pear-shaped. Hmm. Um, and has spilled over also in, in, into places like Mali, and then weapons from Libya spread in, into Syria and so on into the hands of, of jihadists there. Um, the American intervention on behalf of uh, rebel groups in Syria has also gone badly wrong. We had a spectacle at one point of uh, CIA, CIA-backed insurgents fighting Pentagon-backed insurgents. <laughs> um, uh, you know, all, all sorts of crazy nonsense, which have just resulted in, in, in a lot more death and, and suffering. So, again... Does this mean that you can't do some good um, and protect people through the use of force? Theoretically, you can. It's just we don't have, in recent years, many good, good examples of it. Right. The distinction you made between achieving the like the military objective, I guess, versus the political objective, I think, is a very interesting one. Because as you said, is, is would there be military strategists and people that were that were quote leading the charge on these operations that would say, well, we've achieved our mission? But then the politicians can't turn around, as you were sort of saying, and say, well, we've made things safer or we've squashed terrorism or, like you said, we've, we've actually achieved our humanitarian goals. It's, it's, so what you're saying is it is possible to have those two perspectives collide and yeah. actually be at odds then. Yes, absolutely. I mean, often you'll speak to soldiers and say, well, we know we've won every battle. And you'll say, well, yeah, but so what? Right. I mean, if you haven't achieved the political objective for which the battles are being fought, that's, that's really besides the point. And and. and if we go back to Clausewitz again, in his famous book on war, he, he talks about the possibility of a, how the political, political objective and the military objective can, can diverge. Because, mm-hmm. because once you start uh, fighting a war, to achieve your political objective, you have to overcome the enemy. So 
therefore you need to defeat him militarily, so therefore you start focusing on the military objective and it just becomes, war just becomes a process of defeating the enemy and you, you kind of forget why you're defeating enemy, what, what the hell this is all for. Right, right. Right? So um, why are we in Afghanistan or, you know, what the Americans still in Afghanistan? Well, because, you know, we haven't defeated the enemy yet, right? And um, But, you know, what good it's doing you anymore is being sort of, forgotten or, or iraq as an example right i don't think anyone said the goal was to overthrow the regime but clearly they've succeeded in doing so through that process but the goal as you said was weapons of mass destruction or humanitarian issues those were the political well, goals well i mean those were the stated i mean i i right. guess when we get into more subtle things where we thought about what what are the unstated i, I think you were what are the unstated you're actually goals. about to go into something i, I want to get into okay. which is great which is um, that how often would you say um, that are the political, let's say the stated political goals, actually different from the, let's ca call them the behind-closed-door political goals. Yeah, I mean, very often. So so um, if we would consider the invasion of Iraq, the stated political goal is, is to, to, to keep America safe from weapons of mass destruction. However, there's obviously an, uh, an element within the American government at the time who... who have issues with Saddam Hussein and want to get rid of him for, for, for right. personal reasons related to the Bush family, maybe, or also because of um, issues related to Israel or, or all sorts of things. You can develop whatever, or oil, you can develop whatever conspiracy theory you, you particularly want. But, right. but, but there's other things going on there. Similarly, if we look at why why Canada sent forces to, to Afghanistan, you know, clearly we, we the political objective we say is that we want, you know, we want to make Canada safe and, and, and contribute to, towards the defeat of terrorism. But there's other things going on here as well, which is, for instance, you know, being a good ally. Mm, from the Canadian perspective, yes, you're talking about yes. exactly so, right. So, like, we're there just because, well, by being there, we hope we'd, we'll win brownie points. Mm. Now, whether we actually do or not is, is highly questionable, but right. we, we think we do. Now, this, is, of course, creates problems for strategy because if, you, if you've achieved your political objective just by being there, it doesn't really matter what you do when you vet whether you win or you lose, right? right. So this is this is not conducive to desperately right. good 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 strategy. Right. If showing up to the party is all you need to do to get the points, it doesn't matter how the party goes. Right? It, it, exactly, right? right. Um, and that that may go some way towards explaining what a hash uh, of many people have made of things. Um, but then there's other there's other things maybe going on there in, in one book which was written about Canadian decision making in Afghanistan. It, it said that you know uh, there was some issues about where in Afghanistan Canadian forces would go and the generals, you know, they chose the most dangerous bit because, you know, they wanted, well, you know, they wanted a bit of practice. Right, know? right. Um, and it sounds rather cynical, but mm -hmm. when, when you when you go into issues, for instance, to do military industrial complexes and so on, mm -hmm. and you, you find that generals tend to be very reluctant to get out of these things. There's, there's promotion, there's medals, there's glory, there's all sorts of other stuff going on. Right. And of course, there's contracts and money and... and, and and, and all sorts of stuff. So, so these things are also driving the process, and they kind of work just by, as you say, just by, just by being there, just right. by turning up to the party. Well, let's get into the other motivations a little bit because I think uh, Iraq and Afghanistan are both very good ways to explore this and of course you could use whatever example you'd like but it just occurs to me that as we're talking about this that even though there were stated political goals as the iraq for americans operations was going on and for canadians afghanistan was going on uh, post 9 11 there were a lot of people 
who didn't really believe in those stated political goals anyway. Like, you know, some people thought it was just purely a, a corporatist intentions there, like oil, right? That was a big thing everyone talked about. Right. Other people thought, as you said, that this was just about uh, the Bush legacy and things like that. As someone who studied these things, uh, would you say that it's just a mishmash of all these things, including good intentions by politicians that, that get peppered in there? Is it, is it, are the conspiracy theorists right, which is that there's zero good intentions going on here? How do we make more sense of this? Because when you talk to uh, one person or the other, especially people that aren't specialized, in this field they may say oh here's the one reason iraq happened oil and you talk to someone else and they say no no we needed to get rid of saddam hussein how how much of a mixture of all these issues coming together are there or is there usually one surefire thing that people are planning behind closed doors and that's it no i, I think human decision making is extremely complicated and and the idea that you know there's just, as i said this Clausewitzian view that you know war is or, or policy i mean it's going to say about any public policy but it has but it has a clear objective and some politician on top has in what you might call a rational top-down decision-making process has determined the goal and then everything flows logically from that is not how human beings operate and it's not how institutions operate and it's not how state structures operate what happens is is, is a multifaceted bunch of things all get thrown into a pot together to, to produce some result which is perhaps not desperately clear in terms of what objective is really going on. So, um, you know, I would not say that good intentions are absent. I think, you know, people believe their own propaganda, you know, if, 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 if they say that, you know, we're going to make the world a better place and, and we're going to help the poor, impoverished people of wherever land. I think they, 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 they believe that they are they are the good guys and they're fighting the bad guys and then the good will overcome evil and, and, and all this stuff. At least we hope they believe that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they generally, I, I think, you know, generally most people think they're the good guy. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's fair to say, I think I, probably pretty, pretty 99 percent of people think they're a good guy. Right. OK. Even when they're obviously not. But, you know, that, that's the way human beings think. Right. right? Um, um, but that does not mean that they're also not driven by you know personal motives or all or, or that corporate interests or that um, institutional interests are, are not at play. And also that organizational structures are not at play. So, so simply the way certain bureaucracies or institutions function will be different in one place to another place just because of the way they're structured or organized. And that will affect the outcome um, of the process. Um, and um, So would an example be like that, be, be for that the uh, way the Canadian interest structure would work versus the American interest structure? Yeah, exactly. We have, okay. we have a different constitution and different structure of government. So we will, even if you put the same in, even if Canada and the United States somehow had the same wealth and the same size of population and everything else was equal. Mm-hmm. If you put the same information in, something different would come out simply as a product of the different structure, right? Um, and um, therefore, policy can be seen sometimes simply as a product of structure, right? which is not very rational at all. Really. Right. But, you know, but that's the way things work. Um, and, you know, in something like Iraq, you know, oil, right? Is it, is it there? Is it not? Well, not... Obviously, um, I don't think the Americans invaded in order to seize the Iraqi oil. If they did, it hasn't worked because they haven't got it, right? Right. So that, 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 much, that much is clear. Um, but that said, I think there's a reason why the Americans have been so well up in the, the Middle East much more than, say, um, Africa, Right, which is right. clearly that, that you know there's money there and, and there's an important strategic resource there, and I think that that it's not that you're invading in order to grab the resource. It's more that at some point in time the resource has pulled you in there and made you identify this whole region as being some sort of vital interest, and 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 
it's just become a fixated part of your policy making process, um, which pull attracts your attention and pulls you in and make makes you think this place matters in in, in a way, but it doesn't somewhere else. Um, so it has an effect, but perhaps more indirect than you might imagine. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to quote. Um, I guess you could say imperial interest. How much does, in your observation, uh, how much does the West have these kinds of interests? Of course, when we listen to our media, we will hear that, uh, whether it be China, Russia, uh, or, or any of the other, quote, geopolitical rivals, as they say, uh, go and do something. They, they send a fleet somewhere. They send some infantry somewhere. They do a show of force. Uh, it's because they're the bad guys, and they might have imperial interests. And, of course, it's usually portrayed that when the West were to do something, uh, it's reported on that, well, we're either defending something or defending a vital interest or doing doing the good stuff as you said before we're the good guys um not a lot of people tend to think of either canada or the united states as participating in strictly like imperialist activities how much does this sort of political reality play into the west decision making would you think it's not often portrayed that way at least in the media um it's very hard to judge this kind of thing because we're talking about hidden hidden objectives and what's really going on in people's minds and, and, and strategic thinking. Now that there can, we, are, can we tell from the results, though, at least what we see is actually happening well, versus what's being said to happen? Well, I mean, some some people do, you know, write in general um, imperial geopolitical type terms. I mean, th- there are um, texts of geopolitical theory, mm-hmm. which, you know, um, some people who don't like United States policy will, 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 will pull out. So the Russians like to quote Brzezinski and his... Uh, his book, The Grand Chessboard, um, which is seen as sort of the blueprint of, of, of American geopolitics right. and uh, um, so on. I don't think that's probably over-exaggerates, I think, the, the, the importance of one person. But but there are people who do express things in a very blunt way. Most Western politicians don't like to do that, though, because it's not PC, well, yeah. basically. Right. right. So we, we talk about we're defending the liberal international order. Right. Or, or whatever, or the rules-based... Li- liberal democratic institutions. Or, or, or stop, we, we, we talk about um, things like this. That that doesn't mean, though, that there's not some hard-headed geopolitical uh, stuff going on as well. Um, but it's very hard to disentangle it from everything else. Um, so, for instance, if we were to look at uh, the war in Ukraine, which has been going on there, this is, this is clearly... Uh, Ukraine has become essentially a proxy ground in, in a geopolitical struggle. I mean, that's not the sole cause of this war. There are clearly long-standing and important domestic causes of why Ukrainians are fighting one another right now. But um, geopolitical interests and and what you, if you wanted to put it in terms of imperialism, what you might could call imperialism, have, have a part of it, because. Um, you had essentially uh, a couple of competing um, geopolitical uh, uh, projects, uh, the Eurasian Economic Union on the Russian side and and the European Union's um, uh, Eastern Partnership on the other, clashing. And and the European Eastern Partnership, EU would hotly deny this, I'm sure, and they would say it's just about bringing good governance and and, and free markets and and, and stuff like this. The the good stuff. All all the good stuff. we do know that the two people who set it up, Karl Bildt and, and, and Radek Sikorsky, who, who were the foreign ministers of, of Poland and Sweden and had a, had a strong role in, in pushing this, um, did so with, with, a, with a geopolitical objective in mind, which mm-hmm. is we would pull Eastern Europeans, post-Soviet states, out of the Russian orbit in, into the European orbit. Mm-hmm. Now, that is, 
And then, you know, we complain about the Russians are trying to have a sphere of influence, but that's clearly sphere of influence politics right. going on too. Just we, we, we mask we mask our imperial projects in, in terms of democracy building and, and, and so on. But it doesn't mean we're not imperial projects at the same time. So so having said that though, are, can you point to some fundamental differences between the way western states, let's call them, approach international affairs and intervention compared to places that we always hear about are the quote bad guys sometimes, right? Like China and Russia. Uh, are the I know we talked earlier that the, when you really get into it, the incentive structures may be different, different constitutions, different way the states are made up, but when you bring it up to the the grand scheme of things, are these just states trying to ex- exert their influence? I know I'm simplifying, but yeah. is this ultimately what we're talking about here or or i know we talked it's a mix before but uh if people seem to want to draw or at least uh detail a fundamental distinction between uh, the intentions or the way that these two sides of the world go about things is, is it really that different when you really get into it not really actually i mean the it, it i mean one doesn't i'm not a totally hard-headed realist as they call them with a capital r in, in international relations theory nonetheless there is a lot lot to what Realists say in that you know states pursue their interests and they seek to, to, to maximize their power. Now, there's many good ways of doing that as well as bad ways, and you can do it through coalitions, not through, through expansion and so on. Um, but essentially, you know, um, the, the states do always try and you know pursue their interests, and, and, and people like the Russians and the Chinese they, they pursue their interests as they see them, and actually, they, they do so actually, I'd say, rather less aggressively than many Western states do. Hmm. Um, it's just that when their pursuit of their interest happens to clash with our pursuit of our interests, or as what we perceive to be our interests in some way, um, at that point, when, when you have a conflict of interest, that's when we start accusing the other side of, of you know, aggression or, right. or whatever. But but really, they're not actually behaving desperately differently to to we are to way we are. And, and if you were to um, if you were to look at you know who fights the most wars in the world. You know, it's not Russians, it's not the Chinese. Okay, it's, first of all, the Brits. Okay, historically, since 1945, the uh, United Kingdom's fought more wars than any other country, uh, followed by the French, followed by the Americans. Okay, There's, that, there's the top three. They've had a top three. The Russians come in fourth. Um, from the statistics, I saw Australians come in fifth because they, they tag along with the Brits and the Americans. Um, Chinese, I don't think, have fought a war since 1979 in, in Vietnam. All right, so... so um, but but a lot but, it, but a lot of milit are you um, in, in that statistical lineup? In, in, are we talking about uh, just any time there's military action or these like quote declared wars? I know that doesn't happen anymore. Where is that? Well, a lot of these. I mean, from? part of the re- reason the the French and the Brits are so high up on this scale is like post 1945. There are a lot of post colonial wars in, in, in those statistics. Right. Okay. Um, okay. But so so these lop- these do make things a lot of lopsided a little bit. They're not all interstate wars. Some of them will be be civil wars or colonial wars or or, or, or whatever. Um, but they they would be conflicts in which your armed forces are directly involved in in, in some way. Gotcha. So the so for instance, like all the action in the Middle East, the United States has been taking for the past few years, like. With, in that list, that would be classified as either like the Iraq War or what they were doing in Afghanistan. It wouldn't be just, you know, for instance, you can't just count like uh, the fight against global terrorism. On that no, list. no. I There's... mean, I think there's several wars. The Americans are involved in the war. Right. They're fighting a war in Syria. That's clear. They're fighting right. a war in Iraq. You could conflate those into one, to one war, but that's that. They've made some definitional issues. Gotcha. Um, they, of course, were involved in the war in Libya in in, in, in 2011. That they're involved in the war in, okay. in, in Afghanistan, um, and um, there's also um, some conflicts 
I'm going on in Africa, but the extent to which you could say they're at war, because I think the, the level of involvement is, is fairly minor, I, I, I probably wouldn't be added to the statistics. Gotcha, cool. Well, I think this provides a great intro. We're about to take a break, actually. Time flew by right there. But I think, is it, you tell me, is it fair to say that anyone listening to this, as the conversation continues, should at least feel that in order to come to the table and at least try and understand and make sense of how the world works, you, well, you can't start by assuming that your side's the good guy. No, absolutely. I think we need to we need more critical uh, self-reflection before right. we uh, are able to unravel what's going on. Cool. And we'll be doing more of that after the break. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Janet Bufton, Joe Aragona, and Travis Smith. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Everyone, welcome back. We're talking with Paul Robinson today. Uh, Paul, before the break, we just said that for anyone to make sense of what's going on in the world, especially when it comes to international relations, it's it's important that people don't come to the table thinking, wow, my side's the good guy. And we were talking a little bit during the break how it's important to understand that although it's very easy to go and criticize other regimes or people that you don't think are, quote, on your side, uh, one must start with sort of some critical self-reflection, you were saying, yeah. in order to even begin to make sense of things. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's absolutely true. I, I was reading some article by a Norwegian scholar recently about Russian-Western relations that said that the fundamental problem was a mutual lack of critical introspection. So so both sides uh, were saying, like, you know, you're a bad guy, you've done this, you've done that, you know, you you uh, you know, you know, invaded Ukraine, or you invaded Iraq, or whatever, right? You know, so on and so forth. And no one actually ever sits down and says, well, what have, what have I done wrong? Well, may, maybe the other guy's got a point. Maybe, right. maybe, maybe I've done something which which isn't right, and and, and in fact, our politicians are, are really don't like this, and, and they'll um, they'll say like Christia Freeland has said, but this is you know um, what's the exact expression said false equivalency, right? right? But just just you know to say there's any any equivalency between what the Russians have done and what we've done is just completely untrue, and the Russians will go, well, hang on, like you know how many people died during the takeover of Crimea, like, right? Like one. How many people died during the invasion of Iraq and since? Hundreds of thousands, right? So yeah, if it's a false equivalency, it's on your side, right? So, right. You know, so every, it, it's easy to come come back on these things, but our politicians really don't like to do it. Mm-hmm. So, and, and know, for those listening, that was just the uh, the foreign affairs minister of Canada being yeah, being uh, um, name dropped. Yeah. So so, uh, you know, in, in terms of say, think about what's wrong with Russia and the West at the moment, each, each side ha- does have some legitimate grievances about what what the other side has done, but. Um, you know, so so obviously the Russians have done some things that we don't like. But similarly, you know, we've done some things that they don't like. Uh, and simply to, to, to cast the blame on the other person all the time can't possibly help address the problems because you're not addressing the real root of the problem, which is your own misbehavior. Right. And, and until, you begin, until you begin to actually recognize that, you know, you're not behaving very well all the time. Right. Then you're not going to make a lot of progress. I think part of the problem is that in the political arena, like when you're trying to score votes with voters, it doesn't 
pay dividends to basically say, look, guys, let, let's start with a, a you know a, a critical self reflection on what's been going on here. <laughs> I think I think the problem is they say we're the good guys. We need more of the good stuff. So vote for me, and I'll give you more good stuff, basically. Yeah. So I think that's that's probably one of the big issues is that they can on the uh, in international relations and when, when countries and states are dealing with each other, that's one thing. Uh, but on the other hand, turning around to your citizens saying, look, uh, we've been doing some pretty shitty things for the past little while, isn't going to work out for a lot of politicians. I think that's a major issue. It, it is, and and, and and politicians who who have done this have have not you know not got very far i mean in, right. in, if you look at well in canada it hasn't happened at all there is basically zero critical self reflection among uh, among our politicians that's, that's a say. really good point i haven't stopped to actually think about you know, that until you just mentioned that but that's really true you'd have to dig deep to yeah. find like you know, you'd probably have to go into academic journals and things to talk about yeah. that not the news for right. sure so if you if you go in, if you look at america there have been not many but now one or two so like there was ron paul right who 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 clearly hammered this point home again and again? He was very much against uh, a lot of the language and rhetoric that was starting up at the time when he was running the election about Iran. I mean, we still have it today. Yeah. But at the time, I remember that was a big election issue for him. I think he was running in 2012 for sure. Yeah. As and, president, and he was this, all this, against uh, that. Um, excellent video, actually. His uh, election campaign put together one, uh, sort of Rumpel Revolution one, which was like, you know. What would it be like if Chinese troops appeared in Texas and blah 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 blah? Right. It was a very put forward this very powerful point of of you know like think of how what we're doing looks like to other people. Exactly. Right. Um, but of course, you know, I mean, he he was fairly much of a, a fringe candidate. Now Trump, when he was standing for election, there there were many people on the sort of anti-interventionist right who thought, ah, finally, like there's a candidate who who understands that this this is a load of nonsense and this doesn't work because he. He, he sort of picked up on the Ron Paul type language and, and, and ran with it and said, you know, I'm going to end these wars. They don't achieve anything. Um, We're tangled up. It's a waste it's of money. money. Yeah, yeah right, they're right. going to bring the troops back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he didn't. And then he appointed John Bolton and everybody else. And now, like, you know, we're almost at war with Iran. So, so um, even when a politician says these things, they, they, they backtrack on them. And, and now the only candidate really pushing these now is Tulsi Gabbard on, on the... Um, Democratic hustings, but you know she's not going. She's not going to get very far. Right. Her ratings are like one percent or something. Right, right. So um, there, there are one or two people in America, um, but not not many, which is interesting because actually opinion polls suggest that there's actually quite a lot of demand for this, and but the, the public is well, is the more, public is generally fed up with conflict. Yes, and more or less on board with with the 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 idea that these things don't work and they don't. But right. like, it's not productive, and we shouldn't be doing so much of it. Um, but for some reason, whatever reasons, politicians don't want to go there. As I said, in Canada, basically, I can't think of a politician who, 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 who's gone down that line. Um, in the UK, I mean, you have Jeremy Corbyn, has a lot of baggage. Um, there have been some former military officers in Britain who, who've written very critical books about the British Army and what it did in Iraq and Afghanistan and said, you know, we really, we really messed up and, and this is a really bad idea. Do you think that the, a lot, the types of people we just named, are they just is it back to what you said before that they just think of themselves uh, as the good guys and that's why there's not a lot of people or is it just strictly political incentive are there other vested interests or is it that mix we were talking I about think it, I think it's the whole the whole mix of that I, I, I think that um, certainly there's no political not seen as being a serious political advantage in, in, in pushing well you're going to catch a lot of flack if you come out as a yeah, as I, an MP or something like that or a congressman in the United States and, and say hey everything we were going about is wrong yeah and of course in the particular area I study which is Russia in, in, in the aftermath of the whole Russia gate thing you know it, it, it's anyone even begins to suggest that you know you know maybe Russia's not 100% to blame you know you, you immediately 
have run the risk of being denounced as like a Kremlin agent, as a right, as a uh, a Russian proxy, as an agent of influence, a useful idiot, uh, and, and all sorts of uh, dirt will be flung at your name, and, and you'll be accused basically of taking money from from Putin, right. probably personally in little brown packages. Or and, and, and we should be clear and say that that's even not saying oh Russian Russia didn't have to do with this. It, it, even people that try and start by saying maybe it wasn't as much of an influence even the lighter you know side of the the dissent against the main opinion that they are often shut down they're yeah shut absolutely down. and and there is a definite effort to shut down people who who who, who dissent um right. from from um mainstream opinions on certain issues right not on everything i don't want to say we have no free speech of, co- of course, course. Yeah. but 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 um there, there is actually quite an organized industry of, of um lobby groups supporting certain uh Policies who are very, who who are very active, right, and, and uh, in, in shutting out people they don't like, them. right, and we're, we're many layers down in the analysis now too because they have their own set of vested interests and incentive structures, yeah. the, the lobby groups and other people behind this stuff, and the people contributing to the types of information that the news gets as well. So yeah. that's very interesting. Um, so we talked a lot about the incentives involved with all these types of conflicts. And I think some of the low hanging fruit to get into some complexities are things like Iraq and Afghanistan, but something near and dear to the heart of Canadians is often peacekeeping missions, right? I mean, with a label like that, how are we going to say that's a vested interest, right? I mean, the idea is Canadian uh, peacekeepers, Canadian troops go in, usually under a UN mission. They're there to do something great. Usually it's to make sure two sides of a conflict don't shoot each other. That's what's presented. Um, is is this a safe zone for criticism, or are we, or we can we say no? We can point to a lot of examples where, once again, we're back to sort of the vested interests that are behind this stuff, where the the stated political goals are certainly different from the real ones. Oh, well, I mean, yes, with everything you can. Um, of course, peacekeeping is something we don't do anymore, um, and and we can get into what's happened to Canadian. That's another thing too. How, how Canadian foreign policy has, I think, in the last two two administrations under both Trudeau and and, and uh, Harper has has changed very dramatically, and, and I think become much less independent ran it previously well um but anyway if you go back to peacekeeping if you if you think when canada was you know majorly into peacekeeping and uh, um in traditional peacekeeping as opposed to the more you know robust peace enforcement and peacemaking type thing people talk about now which is really waging war with a blue helmet on um the traditional peacekeeping uh, there, there are certain reasons why countries like canada and norway were major advocates of it and, 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 and played an important role in it, which was that it was a way of, of a middle-sized power to, to exercise some sort of independence on the world scene and, and to, to make a contribution mm. which was uniquely its own and to win a certain degree of prestige and influence. In, in other words, there's a reason that, at least from a political perspective, that people were so happy to, or at least were happy to rush to switching from peacekeepers to peacemakers. Although some right. of the, the Canadians might feel there's a bit of a national identity quote thing lost there. It's it's not as if the transition was hard for the people that were running the show. Not necessarily. Because, I mean, cause, because you know, I mean, it, it, national interests played played a role in, in in this all along which is when you when you're a small military power you know it, it, there's not a lot of point trying to be like small plus a tiny bit which is kind of where we're going at the moment because you don't really you're still small compared right. to the americans right you're never gonna be, you're never gonna make your mark as canada as a military power no right not without an aircraft carrier no, or, or five or something which clearly, <laughs> exactly. we're, you know we're, we're, we're not going to spend whereas, right. you, you, whereas you can make a mark doing something like like peacekeeping so mm-hmm. so so that you know even even that is, is, i wouldn't say it's not altruistic and you know obviously this like sense of doing good and bringing peace and so on is part of it 
but it, it, it was also a way of building influence. And then also, as you say, building um, national identity, giving a sense of national pride, and that reaps political benefits for politicians because people feel good about their country and they're the more likely to re-elect politicians they feel good about the country. And and you could build up a, a nice story of, you know, peaceful right. Canada and how we're not American because Americans bomb people Vietnam, but, you know, we go build peace and, and, and so on. So, 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 so e even then, you know, there, there is more going on than just you might... Might imagine. Right. And that, that's definitely the theme of this entire chat so far, is that it's never just sort of that caricature storybook, like, there's the good guys, there's the bad guys. So it's very, very interesting to be talking about that. Um, and you, you did allude to at the beginning where you're not, um, and correct me if I'm, I'm mistaking this or misquoting it, but you said you're not like a, a you're not a full realist with a capital R. That is just, would it be fair to say at that point then you wouldn't be opposed to saying sometimes military intervention would be a good thing or that there could be a good case to be made for it? Is there ever a good case to be made for it? I, and I understand that when it comes to the intentions and what you want to do versus the results of military intervention, th those are two different questions. But from your perspective, when would be a good time for military intervention? But if I get sort of philosophical uh, sure. about this, and when, when you're, you're in a difference between what you might call act utilitarianism and, and, and rule utilitarianism. So... You know, if you're an act utilitarian, you would say, well, you measure each act by whether that act does more good or more more harm, right? And if you're an act utilitarian, you say, well, yes, you, there, a case could be made for military intervention if in that individual case more good is going to come than more harm, and then you find some examples where that's happened. So you could say, for instance, when the British went into Sierra Leone in, I think, 1999, uh, and they helped the government wipe out some some armed gangs and it was very quick it was reasonably efficient and it was reasonable reasonably successful and you could say look you know military military intervention can work okay well, therefore we should not argue against military intervention because you know we have examples of, of achieving uh, goals relatively quickly and, and cost-free if you're a, a rule utilitarian or rule consequentialist you'd say okay fine okay in this one little you know, little case of Sierra Leone, okay, right. it worked. But, you know, then we got Iraq and Afghanistan and all these other big monster failures right. against it. So is it really a good idea to say, yes, you can do this thing? Wouldn't it be better to to, to ban it, uh, to, to say, no, you shouldn't do it ever, even if that means missing out on the opportunities when when you when you could do it? Um and then people say, well, that's awfully callous because you're saying, well, okay, well, that means we should turn a blind eye when we, when we could have done some good. Um, yeah, but then the, you rule, rule utilitarian and say, yeah, but if you, if you, if you're, if you, what you say is, oh, we'll do it whenever we think it's going to do good, you're going to do it all the time because you're always going to think it's going to. Right. You, you, that we know from experience that you're going to be overly optimistic and you're going to, you're going to overestimate your chance of success every time. And then it becomes habit forming. So there's a, um, uh, there's a, American theologian called Walter Wink, who wrote an interesting book in which he talks about the, um, I forgot the, exact, the myth of redemptive violence. He, he talks and says that this is like one of the foundational myths of Western society, which is that this story which you can find in all your TV shows and everything, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or just you know Game of Thrones or whatever it is you're watching, right? But 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 you know there's, there's some bad guys there, and you know we're gonna bash their heads, and that will redeem. Just, and just that watch will, a western. Yeah, right? that will, that will, yeah, that will that will redeem us all. Right. And this is this is um, you know deeply embedded in in, in, in our psyche, and in, because of this, the wars which actually work and do good, he says, are even more dangerous than the ones which don't because it's like 
the example you can pick on, <laughs> like this one worked. I mean, everyone will roll with it and say, hey, you know, um, right. you know, so, so. Even if the circumstance is entirely different, entirely people say different. at a high level, oh, like intervention worked here, let's go intervene yeah, there. Yeah, and then it just becomes a, a, a it becomes a habit forming thing. So, right. So, so are you gearing towards sort of saying on net, this isn't really a good thing if you look I, at the evidence? I, I would say if you look at net overall, mm -hmm. this, go back to your original question, does it work? Overall, no. Okay. Therefore, if you're talking about what rules you should have in international society, um, the rules should be the ones which, ma if you're utilitarian, the rules should be the ones which maximize utility. So, so therefore, the rules should prohibit it. That, does, that, does that mean that in the world of real politics, it's impossible to do it? No, because in international law is not quite like national law. There's, there's, there's people ignore it when they really, 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 really want to. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if you allow flexibility into the rule, people will, will they'll drive us you know, a truck for every tiny little loophole they can, right. they, they, they can find. And it's one it's one thing to say, okay, it doesn't work. Uh, a lot of people say it just goes, not only does it not work, it makes things much worse. Is that often true when you study, like, the different uh, scenarios and different conflicts? Well, certainly in the last 20 years, that's been the case. Mm. No. Um, I mean, and, I mean, if you look at... Like, for instance, it's made terrorism worse? Because terrorism yeah, yeah, is a big clear, thing in the past I mean, 20 years, right? It's obvious so, it has made terrorism worse. Right. I mean, that, 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 is, that is obvious. I mean, if you look at places where Western states have, have intervened militarily, they are almost always worse off. I mean, there's one or two examples you might um, use against Saudi if you want to talk about the Balkans. But even then, the, the situation is, is quite complex, and, and, and people are not very happy with what's going on in, in, in Bosnia and Kosovo and so on, even now. So, um, but when we talk about military intervention, what we really need is war. It's, it's a euphemism. We don't like to say we wage war, because again, that's kind of non-PC, okay? But, but basically, we're talking about war. Right. It's interesting how language switches over time. I was watching some archive stuff from the 80s on C-SPAN from the States, and it was interesting to me how all the guests, they were no problem saying, oh, well, we're even politicians on there, right? Well, we're not just, you know, we're, we're going to bomb there, but we're not going to bomb there. And you turn on TV, no one's talking about bombing people. It's talking about intervening. Like intervening, you said, yeah, uh, okay. You can sell it better, okay? <laughs> right. But basically, we're talking about raging war. Right. Now, um, like people are going to get shot or bombed. Shot. Now, if, about, if right? you're going to ask, does war on average make things better off or worse off? Well, I think this is a pretty dumb question because it's pretty obvious, but overall it makes things worse off. Yes. I mean, it, and it's interesting, like one moral philosopher said, an interesting way of looking at it, he said like a maximum of 50% of people can win a war. Right, I mean, because both sides can't win, right? right. So it's like That's maximum of 50%. But actually most of the time, most people... Neither side really wins, right? Or if they do win, um, it it wasn't worth winning, right? Overall, so, in, in so, the broad, like uh, there's a lot of costs to war, and I mean in the yeah. broadest sense. So, so war is costly. So, I think you can say it is a statistical certainty that most people lose most wars. There you go. <laughs> so, so it it is almost like statistically certain that war is going to leave you worse off than better off, right? I mean, and, and I think that that is, if, so when you're thinking about it, you should think of it in that terms. And you should also think, of, go back to Clausewitz. Clausewitz had this term where he talked about friction. He said friction was all these little things which get in the way of a plan. So, so, you, so you have a plan, but it doesn't never works the way you think it's going to do because right. I know, people turn up late or they're tired and they, don't, or they just don't want to do it or, or your machine breaks down at the last moment or it snows or it's just it's, and there's this accumulation of friction which you know if you mess everything up right and, and something always goes wrong mm -hmm. 
Right. right. And then we were surprised, like, you know, we invade Iraq and it doesn't turn out the way we want people to say, well, no one could have known that this would have happened. <laughs> well, okay, maybe they, they couldn't have known that this would have gone wrong. Right. But they should have known that something was right. bloody well going to go Because something always does. Right. There's human beings running this thing. Yeah. Like, a picture one of the worst school projects you've ever been on, but on a grand scale, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, like you said, people come to work tired. They do this. Some guy didn't hand in his report on time or something, right? The friction. Yeah. That's a very interesting and point. And war is. War, crammed full of friction right and um, and you know particularly because it, it, it it's something which really gets it's deeply emotional right uh, uh, and people are afraid and people are, are excited and, and and all these things going on and that leads to of course very bad decisions being made and all sorts of things um people not doing what they should be doing or whatever uh, 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 and you know, you, you can expect that this is not going to go as planned. Right. Uh, and again, this is something, you know, I think our politicians don't think we're, we're, we live in a hyper-rational society, I would say. You know, we're all enlightenment people. And we will, you know, we've all we've all been suckered in by this idea of social science. But, you know, somehow there are, there are rules to society and, and to social interaction such as warfare or economics, right? Right. And if we can just decipher the rules and then apply the rules, then it, we, we, we can do X. Policy input X will lead to policy output Y. But it's not like life isn't life isn't like that. Right. And and no no two no two situations are ever the same. And and Clausewitz also says, you know, war is an interaction. It's not it's not like playing billiards that you hit a ball and you know the ball will go in a certain direction right, because which is, of the like, which is on a contained table yeah. with a certain amount okay. of outcomes. It, but it's an interaction. Someone is right. pushing the ball back in a completely random way you cannot predict. So it's never input X right. is never going to produce the same results twice. This time it produces Y, but next time it's going to produce Z. And the time after that it's going to produce alpha. And, and and yet somehow we think because we've got this hyper rational sort of enlightenment view of the world and scientific thinking that we can control it but we can't right it's a hopeful thought it's like you're, you're hoping people hope for this it seems right that yeah. the poly, even from a voter perspective people might think oh i hope the people in charge and the people running this like they know what they're doing right they yeah. come and they have their press conference but like you said i think the, the billiard table or the pool table is a really good example of that right so someone might pick up a ball and throw it someone might take their ball and go home right there's tons of things that could happen it's not like a pool game yeah so, so you know greeks would have seen wars you know Ares is a god of chaos and like it is it's not he controls you you don't control him and but somehow we've lost well, we've lost that we think we can we think we can use violence as a um precision tool and i think the, the increase of uh, you know precision guided weapons and all these kind of things and science science and technology has, has perhaps made this worse and if you ally that to to, to sort of western rationalism we potentially and you ally it then of course to a certain arrogance about our own moral superiority then, then we're in potentially um dangerous territory someone so someone listening to this might say oh, that's all fine and good there's a lot of situations that are complicated but someone might say but there are some situations that are sort of you know clear-cut like for instance we were talking a little before we started the episode about the term rogue states right somebody might say well and this might not be the best example now just because of recent events but for instance like north korea right that this was a country that was used as an example for many years of like you know the rules don't apply to them right they, they might have nukes they, they're, they're doing what they they might use nukes, I should say. They're doing what they want, like, uh, and it always seems like, depending on the year, uh, the option to maybe invade them or shut them down was always on the table, kind of thing, right? right. So, so, some, like I said, someone might say that a rogue state is a clear-cut example of when, when we need to get involved. Is well, that when, 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 true? I mean, when did North Korea last attack anybody? This is a good question. Okay, I mean, North Korea has not fought a single war since 1953. 
so you know why 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 are we who for I don't know how many wars since then you mm-hmm. know complaining about North Korean international politics? Now I, I'm not a defender of the North Korean regime for its in, in, internal mm-hmm. politics. It's, it's clearly mismanaged it, its own country horribly mm-hmm. badly for, for for the past few decades. Right, right. Um, but it it it's it's not particularly. I mean, it's done you know it's done a few naughty things like you know kidnappings. Of Japanese citizens back in back, I think in the sixties and seventies, yeah. it was it was it was doing. That. But you're saying relatively speaking, you know. But relatively speaking, okay. So it's got nuclear weapons, fine, and, and you know, and we we don't like that because you know we want to have an anti-proliferation uh, regime. However, you know, the Indians have have nuclear weapons, and the Pakistanis have nuclear weapons, and we don't call the Indians a rogue regime. We don't call the Israelis a, a rogue regime. They have nuclear weapons. So, so we need to be a little careful about this. It, it, it's a way of um, moralizing international relations. Hmm. Um, similarly, like the Iranians, you know... Can, um, can you get into that a bit more before we move to Iran? Like, moralizing international relations, what, what does that tendency mean, like, when people try to do that? Well, I mean, what is you, you, you try and... Um, Justify your 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 own politics by essentially painting those with whom you have conflicts of interests in in very mo- morally negative tones. Oh, like back by, to what we we're saying before. It's like the caricature thing, right? Yeah, like, and, okay, and, gotcha. and you know, so so um, you know, there's a lot of this which which goes on, um, and of course, you know, sometimes these states because of their own domestic policies, right? Like in the case of North Korea, you know, uh, it's quite easy to do it. Right, because you know it's it's not a particularly pleasant regime, right? So, so <laughs> or Iraq under Saddam yeah. Hussein, for instance. Yeah. Right. But I think you, you you need to be very careful to draw a distinction between internal politics and external politics. And the idea, which is I think very popular among you know liberal uh, interventionists, um, not just neoconservatives, but also uh, you know um, the likes of our own foreigners and Christian Freeland and and, and the rest of the sort of liberal liberal strand of of, of, of interventionists. Um, they, 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 they like to say that, you know, the one leads to the other, that, you know, a, a, a internally oppressive regime will be an externally aggressive regime. But th- there is really no data to justify this at all. The evidence doesn't support no, that No, it doesn't assertion. support it in, okay. in, in any way. So, so it simply isn't true that, that just because a state is internally repressive, um, that it's going to go around invading people or, 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 or causing trouble internationally, whereas a state could be, you know, I mean, who's fought? I go back to my statistics. Who actually right. fights the most wars? Well, it's liberal democracies. So, right. so, so we we have to be um, a lot more careful at, at, at separating internal from external politics. Right, and so a, a lot of politicians and. and even just people that think about these things, like regular citizens, voters, uh, people might say, that's all fine and good, Paul, but but now the, the world has, quote, changed. Uh, things are different. We're not talking about states anymore. We're talking about terrorism. Terrorism is a global problem. Uh, what do you say to someone who says that? That, well, there, there clearly are situations where we need to intervene uh, and, and solve the problem of terrorism, regardless of what country they're on. I think George Bush said something like, you know, well, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, and probably not doing a direct quote, but he was basically like, wherever you are, we're going to find you. After that, right. was, uh, that was the whole okay. sh- well, I, I mean, let, let's. I, 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 there's two two parts of this. First is like, how big a problem is terrorism for us? Um, you, you, and you mean for us, as in like this country? Let's say. Well, I'd case. say this country okay. or Western states okay. in in general. And then second, like, you know, does military intervention help? Okay. Well, f- the first point is like, terrorism is not a big problem for us. Right. I I, I don't want to you know, say it's not a problem at all. Um, in 2005, when a bomb went off in in, in London, um, I and my family were like 200 yards away or something. Right. Right. So. so so I, I know this kind of stuff can happen, and it's very unpleasant. Um, 
However, when I was young and a British Army officer in the 1980s, um, and early 1990s, you know, I had to look, look under my car every time before I got into it mm. because the IRA were putting bombs under the cars of, uh, of British soldiers. Uh, and in fact, Britain had a lot more terrorism in the 1970s and the 1980s than it does now. Canada had a lot more terrorism um, in the late 1960s, early 1970s than it does now. My, I was born in Montreal. My, par my parents lived in, in Montreal at the time. And, and they tell me, you know, you, you could hear the, the post boxes being blown up mm. on a regular basis. My godmother, who is American, tells me her lecture theater, she was a student at McGill, her lecture theater was blown up. Okay. That doesn't happen nowadays. Now, I, the FLQ didn't kill a lot of people but but nonetheless there are a lot more incidents than there are now and if you look at statistics for countries like canada western europe again okay, north america the united states so there was a lot more terrorism in the 1980s right similarly in latin america like latin america you know there was an enormous amount of terrorism in the 1980s and 1990s it was actually you know there still is a significant amount of it but in places like peru colombia and so on it's actually declined um quite dramatically. So you're bringing up the point, essentially, is this as big of a problem so as it was? So it's not actually that big a problem as it was. It, it, now, in recent years, since 9-11, the amount of terrorism worldwide has increased dramatically. And this is, again, this will come back to this about whether military intervention works, but it has been a dramatic increase statistically in, in, in the number of uh, terrorist attacks and the number of fatalities from terrorism since 2001. Mm -hmm. However, when you unpack it, you see that this is concentrated in five countries in the world, hmm. like Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Nigeria, and um, uh, one of our But basically, 80% of these terrorist incidents take place in five countries. And those countries sound quite familiar with other lists of things <laughs> that have been happening. Right. Uh, and yes, other things have been happening, apart from perhaps, in, you know, there's been no military intervention in, in Nigeria, um, but there's been some spillover from. Mm -hmm. down through, through, through North Africa, from, from the Libyan uh, in, intervention there. Um, so your odds of being killed by a terrorist in Canada are, I mean, tiny. And I, I don't want to say that that means we shouldn't be spending money on CSIS or the police and looking into this, because obviously we should, because we want to we keep it tiny. But it, but it is best dealt with at that level as, as a policing and, and as, as, as a criminal uh, matter, as an, as an intelligence mm -hmm. and security matter. Okay, because that's the sort of scale of response which it merits. Not not, not like a, a, a foreign relations or foreign affairs issue. This should be a security yeah. issue it's, purely is what yes. you're saying. Now, okay. but then you say, well, okay, but does military intervention work? I mean, well, the answer looking since 2001 has to be a, a massive no. Because as I said, there's been a massive, massive increase in terrorism um, uh, worldwide. Well in five countries uh, since, since since 2001. And if we say um, the goal was to reduce it, it, it clearly didn't it, happen. It clearly hasn't. And in fact, since you see that this terrorism is concentrated in countries such as Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, all countries in which we've got military involved, and it has got worse since we've become militarily involved in those countries, mm -hmm. it is clearly not working and is it would seem to me as actually has made it worse. Right. The idea that um, intervention in Iraq in particular has made you know the world safer or has abetted the fight against terrorism is, is an obvious nonsense because it quite clearly has made things worse mm -hmm. dramatically worse though not for us and I think this is why politicians are able to get away with it and, and, and why our publics don't complain much about this because the cost isn't borne by us well I mean there's a sort of financial cost and Canada lost 150 soldiers in Afghanistan but you know the military is a bit of a closed caste. Most families 
don't have members within the militaries. It's, it tends to be the, the same families. It tends to be from certain small social groups in, in Canada, like predominantly there's a large amount from the from the Maritimes and so on. So not everybody, people don't notice it, hmm. okay? Because it's very few people actually know someone who, who, who who's killed. And the financial cost is... Um, as you know, the Institute of Liberal Studies on Open is public choice theory. You know, but the 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 the, the cost is dispersed over over everybody. So it may cost Canada fifteen billion dollars in Afghanistan, but the average Canadian taxpayer has paid a hundred bucks over ten years, and so he 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 doesn't really realize that this is costing a lot of money, right? Put that in perspective. We've all been paying a hundred bucks maybe for all that violence and intervention. Okay, so 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 so, so therefore, there's no great cost for a politician in in doing this. But it's an enormous cost for the people who are being intervened against. But we don't we don't care about that because it's not us. Um, and there's one uh, one author um, who described this as I think it was um, risk transfer war, which I think is quite a good expression because of what it shows is now there's a risk that we might be harmed. Okay, so what we're going to do is transfer the risk onto you, the population against whom we're intervening, and then you know. You die in your thousands, but at least you know we we have less of a risk, and and that's essentially what is what is going on. I feel, and of course, I mean, we then justify this by saying, "Oh, we're fighting dictators or something." But right. What we're really doing is killing a lot of people so that we can reduce our already pretty tiny chance of being killed by a tiny, tiny little bit more. I mean, not we don't even actually necessarily succeed in doing that. And as we were saying before, like, there may be some military, like strictly military objectives that are achieved. Like you said, there's some people yeah. out there that say, "Well, we never lost a battle." But yeah. once again, tying it back to what most yeah. most people care about, which are the political objectives, yeah. they're certainly not being achieved. And the pol- but one political objective is being achieved, which is the politicians are able to say that they're doing something. There you go. Right. That they're not the ones caught with their pants uh, down. Okay. They're not and that's the ones the real, that aren't doing anything. But that's often, I think, if you're thinking about the risk, what is the risk which is being transferred to to be, to be intervened against population? Mm. It's the risk which the politician has of being accused of having done nothing if something were to happen. Right. Because the, it's not that we actually think something necessarily will happen. It's just the point of, well, if we don't do it and something does happen, then I'm going to get blamed. Right. So therefore, there is a natural bias among politicians towards action and then that's key that they're operating under a different incentive structure namely the election cycle primarily yeah and, and the incentive structure is an incentive towards action right okay because politicians always feel they need to do something about any given problem it's essentially there's a lot of ass covering going on and, and you, were, you were talking about ron paul before as an example of someone who did bring about anti-interventionist talking points but how, how was he painted right it was very easy to see the evidence right in front of us he was the the weak guy on foreign policy his foreign policy made no sense this is what people said about him right yeah. that if, if something were to, they always threw at him at the base well if something were to happen what would you do like he was always looked at as this person that wasn't going to do anything if we were yeah. attacked or whatever the case may be and it's very bizarre if, if you look at uh, you know liberal media in, in the united states new york times or something, right? Uh, Washington Post, and, and and then suddenly, you know, what are they nice to Trump about? Or when he, when he sends cruise missiles into Syria, it's suddenly now, finally, the president, he's being presidential, right. and it's very odd. I remember noting that as soon as that happened, I said, oh, now they love him for about forty eight hours <laughs> when, the, when the when the bombs went when they threw him into Syria. I was like, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's, suddenly it's, it's, CNN think he's okay because right. he's bombing something, which is very strange, right. and particularly coming from you know the the, the media, which is slightly to to the left, which was traditionally um, seen a, a, as being more anti-war, but, right. but but something has happened in terms of um, political discourse where that is no, no longer the case. Before we leave off on, on the, the main topic, I want to say, so we, we talked about a lot about a, about a lot of things here. 
what what are the alternatives to everything we're talking about? Because as we've sort of said, like it it, it oftentimes becomes uh, okay, uh, like you said. Uh, the conversation seems to be restricted to do we wear a seatbelt uh, as we're going off the cliff? Do, do, do we want to make sure that the airbags are going to deploy properly? But no one really talks about, about the car itself. How, how, how do we talk about the car itself? Is that just more, more diplomacy or is that just uh, too much of a, uh, you know, optimistic outlook on my part is that it, like you, you can't just diplomacy your way out of everything. So, so how, how, how do we improve things? in foreign relations. I know it's very complex. And I know that you're not the, the person to be asking to make, oh, just put a fine point on it, one answer, one silver bullet, because you're not a politician. But but how do, how do we at least get there? Is it back to the self-criticism you were talking about? But it's very difficult. I mean, yeah, obviously, I mean, I'm speaking as an academic. Right. And to say it's very easy for me to say, well, we need more self-criticism, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> so I, um, I, and I can make... Not unless we send all the politicians to therapy. Yeah, and, and I, 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 I can make all sorts of nice recommendations, but I know none of them are going to happen. You know, um, so, for instance, you know, if, if you're concerned about um, military intervention, which you think is, is kind of productive, then, you know, clearly you need to... Um, reduce defense expenditure because it, it's very much a case of you know politicians will use the tools they've got we have a military which is sitting around doing nothing because no one's going to invade us and we know no one's going to invade us right what are we going to do with all these thousands of people so there's a temptation just to use them because they're there and they're not doing anything right i was, I was talking to someone right? once and they basically said uh there is the temptation to you to use the toys in your toy box unfortunately exactly. that's, a, that's a reality yeah so so um, it, it's, uh, I mean, there was a famous occasion when uh, Madden Albright, who was Secretary of State under Clinton, wanted to, to, to bomb the Serbs, and uh, Colin Powell, who was then chief of the, um, Joint Chief of the Defense Staff in, in, in the United States, Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, I think you call it, said, you know, we shouldn't be, I don't think we should do this. It, it doesn't meet my criteria of, of being a vital national interest, um, which we need to use force against. And, and um, Madeleine Albright turned around and said, what's the point of having this marvelous military you're always talking about if we never use it? Jeez. Right? And, and this is kind of the attitude. If, you, if you've got the tool in the toolbox, you and, and it's not going to be used for any other reason because no one is going to attack us militarily. It's just not going to happen. And we know it's not. Then obviously you're going to use it. So the policy of the current last two Canadian governments, which have been to increase defense expenditure, mm-hmm. um, but of course then recessions happen and, 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 and things don't increase quite as much as they said they would, but you know, the the government, current government, announced it would increase defense expenditure quite dramatically, fifty percent or something. I think it was over over ten years or something. Um, that, in my view, is entirely mistaken because there is no military threat to Canada, which which could justify that. The only way that could be justified would be in terms of foreign military intervention, right? Hmm. And so if you create such a, a interventionist force, we're going to end up using it. And that's not the way it's presented to people. I mean, as you, there's a lot of of fear in this process from politicians yes. too, right? If we don't do X, Y, and Z, uh, the outcome will be that we're going to be attacked. That's yeah. one of the attitudes. So, so uh, I mean, my solution is we, we need to, Western states should be cutting defense expenditure because I don't think it is it has proved to be um, constructive um, and it leads us down into uh, bad policy options. But then that's kind of like, me saying again, making a policy suggestion I know is not going to happen, right? So, so <laughs> the question is, like, how do you convince politicians that they should do this? And that's that's very problematic, right? Because particularly as they're part of, um, there's huge institutional um, pressures to do these kind of things because we're all mixed up in these clubs like NATO, where there's immense peer pressure on people to 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 
to do these things and to be part of a club and go along. And even if you don't agree with it, you you, you go along with it. So we see, for instance, in, in the EU, there are certain states who don't agree with um, the current sanctions regimes against Russia. The, the, the Italian government, for instance, and the Greek governments have been, you know, have, have made it clear that they don't support it. But every time it comes up for a vote, they vote in favor to renew it. Because, you, 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 well, you're part of the club. You can't be the one who rocks the boat. And besides, you know, the Germans might not give you your loan if you don't go in and whatever, right? So, so right. All, all sorts of things like this. So, so um, the, I think the, the the current institutional setup we have of international security is not is not helping either. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is then that then Lisa, how do you, how do you persuade politicians to come up with another, and, and we just keep coming up with more questions and, and and how you actually get people to go that way? I don't know because although I'm very critical of myself, the costs of it are very low. Let's, let's be perfectly honest, right? You know, we, we, our, our war in Afghanistan, our Canadian war in Afghanistan was a failure, right? I think that's fairly obvious. Um, although the military across the road down there will, I'm sure, hotly deny it, but basically it was in terms of achieving higher objectives. But, A, getting them to admit it, no way, because, they, you know, it was like, as far as they're concerned, the best thing they've done in, in years, right? And B, well, you know, what did it cost the average Joe Canadian? Like nothing, really. So I don't back to the dispersed costs you were talking dispersed about. Dispersed right? costs. Yeah. Um, so uh, unless some way can be found of making the cost clearer or the costs become much greater, I don't think very much is, is going to change. And, and and that's the vested interest, the particular interests or groups who want to do these kind of things, because they have, you know, they have more lobbying power than the people suffering the dispersed costs. And we're back to a classic public choice theory problem. And I don't think, as with all those problems, there's not an easy way out of it. There's certainly not not an easy way out of it in order, in the sense of how do we achieve this and what steps do we take. But I think what you said is is very clear, which is I think if the costs of all this became clear to the average person, there might be less of it ultimately. It might be something that people don't want to choose in the voting booth if they know that those kind of costs are going to be attached to it. The only way we can do that is by, you know, doing our own little bit to, to make it clear. But of course, you know, most of the politicians in the media who, who, who are not make, not doing that. So, before before we, we conclude the episode today, I just want to say one thing I really enjoyed uh, as I was listening to you was that how you use very like plain language on how um, you describe the interactions between some of these folks on the world stage because it's not often written like about like that in like let's say an op-ed in the New York Times. You don't see uh, people write down, for instance, like oh uh, they won't be accepted in the club or their people will be upset or there's peer pressure. So I really I really like that because it really like as I was saying, you're listening, it really puts into perspective that that's the kind of we are still talking about as we were saying before human beings. These are the yeah. kind of interactions that they are worried about at, at even that level, right? Yeah. People, there's a prestige around it for a lot of people on the world stage. Right? Although that person's going to the UN, oh my God, right? That person's going to speak there. But like you said, peer pressure, trying to support your quote friends, like Canada did with America yeah. and Afghanistan. That these are these are all real incentives that are, are put into yeah. that are inputs to this. So, so I mean, I I, I happen to think that you know the. Canadian foreign policy was much more successful, for instance, back in the Chrétien government. Hmm. Um, actually, I think Chrétien government was a lot better than the last two governments in, in, in many ways. Um, but uh, if you were to go speak to people at National Defence Headquarters, they were regarded as like, you know, the, the black era of doom because there were budget cuts and, and everything. And, and, you know, they, 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 they couldn't, they would turn up to a NATO meeting and, you know, no one would listen. Why would you listen to the Canadian? Right, and and so a bit of an inferiority. Uh, yeah, thing going and on. you know, you obviously knew as a general turning up to a NATO meeting that 
no one took you seriously and no one cared for you and, and it didn't matter what you said no one was really going to listen to you whereas when you like fight a war in Afghanistan and suddenly like people you know suddenly you can walk in and people will shake your hand and people want to listen to you a little bit uh, 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 and you know you think that's a good thing and you, you, it's not that you're being selfish because you will associate your own increased prestige with somehow increased influence of your state over other states now that's not necessarily true. In fact, maybe you're not really having any more influence, but you, that's the way you you will associate it. Right. right. So, so this these sort of issues of peer pressure and, and prestige and personal status and so on they, they do matter and they do affect the way politics operates. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that these people they do go to their own. I want to try some plain language. They go to their own social clubs. They have their own parties, right? Yeah. They do talk like amongst yourself. Like I said, there are like other incentives at play that isn't just yeah. getting down to business and the policy paperwork yeah, in, when in, they go to these places. In, in, in every in every sphere of policy, be it security policy or health policy or whatever whatever sphere it is, you know, there is a you know there is a sort of club, right? Right. And, and um, you you want to be you want to feel you're part of it. You and I certainly weren't invited to that club, so we can't tell. No, and I, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm never going to be invited. I'm fairly confident about it. <laughs> That's too bad. I, I, I wish they would invite Again, you. Again, I think there's a self-selective thing. You know, if you right. say these things, you don't get invited. Right, right, right. Well, if I was organized, I'd make you keynote speaker. So there you go. <laughs> you can set them straight. So we've been talking about a lot. Let's bring it full circle and put a finer point, although it may be very tough on tough issues like this. But what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening here today on whether or not military intervention works, if we could sum it up? I, I would say that the use of military force um, to achieve uh, specific policy goals is, is unwise, generally. It generally doesn't work as a precision tool to, to um, achieve some certain political or security objective. It is something, force is something you use and war is something you wage when you are directly threatened when someone has attacked you, when your life is in immediate danger, okay, if you're the Soviet Union when Nazis have invaded you or whatever, right? You fight because your existence depends on it. And and it would be bizarre if you did not fight. Okay. But beyond that, the idea that you can you can pick up violence and you can pick up war and then have in your sight some some policy objective, be it, you know, stability in the Middle East or defeating terrorism or, or you know, promoting human rights and, and precisely use it to advance that goal successfully is extremely unwise and doesn't reflect the nature of the beast, that is to say, of war itself, which is something which is inherently um, difficult to control, inherently unpredictable. As Clausewitz said, you know, there's no other human activity so much bound up with chance as war. So remember, if you're thinking about war, okay, it is a gamble. That's what Clausewitz said. He said it's like a game of cards. You're gambling. It's and not a precise political it, tool by any means. Not by any means. And you're gambling with odds which are stacked against you. I think that's a great way to wrap it up. Paul Robinson, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. 
check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.